Wow. I, I think one thing that stands out in that song to me is what hindered love will one day become part of your story. And uh, I think that's so true of all of us as we look back on our past life before Christ and even after coming to Christ. The things that hindered us now become part of our story that help us share the message with others. Amen. A few announcements before we jump into God's Word. This Wednesday we're having our first Wednesday celebration. And it's going to start at 5.30. It's a cookout for the entire church. And then at 6.15 we'll be here in the worship center to have a great worship time and a special message from the book of Psalms. We want to encourage everyone to come to that. Again, it's this Wednesday. And then this Saturday, as I mentioned, is our church-wide yard sale. So come and find a good deal. And if you want to volunteer, that would greatly be appreciated. And then the first Sunday, um, which is next week, we're having um, Sunday Night Life. And we're having special guest Mitch Korn, who was a pastor in Hendersonville. He's going to be sharing with us. So I encourage you to come out, um, support us, support him, and uh, just hear what uh, God is doing in his life. So we got a busy week ahead, right? So it's going to be really good. I'm really excited about today's message, kind of before we uh, jump into it. Uh, kind of a backdrop is the church on Wednesday nights has spent about 11 Wednesdays preparing for what you're getting ready here tonight. And we had a five-hour leadership retreat. So we wanted to give the church kind of the highlights, some of our favorite uh, points of the message, and some of the favorite stories of the people you guys will get here today. So I was telling Lori, of the past 18 years, this is one of my favorite messages to deliver. So uh, uh, hopefully we'll get out not not too late because I'm really excited about today. So on that note, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're good. And God, thank you for the worship uh, of the choir and Madison's special song. We just give you praise for that. And Father, I thank you for what you're doing at Arden First and that this is a place where we can come just as we are and we can leave changed and transformed by the love and truth of the grace of Christ and the gospel message. So, Father, we pray that you'd open our eyes um, to what you'd have to say to us. We pray that as we talk about the vision that you've given us as a church, that we would all be captivated and captured with what you're doing. And, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would blow in our hearts and blow through this place today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're doing a three-part series called We Have a Dream. It's great when you say, I have a dream, but even greater is the power of we. When two or more collectively come together and say, it's not as I, but it's we. It's we the people. And um, kind of this message today that I'm going to bring to you, I've really, God's been brewing in my heart for really since 2009. So he's been working For the past eight years of what would it look like if a church called a vision? What would it look like if we lived by the Bible and it it changed the community? You know, it's kind of like asking the question, what if everybody ardent first surrendered their whole lives to Christ? What would that look like? What if everyone found out what their spiritual gift was and began to use that gift to serve the body, to serve the community? What if we every day realize that each day is a gift of God and we'll never get to relive that day? What if this was a place where people were fully alive for the glory of God? What if church became fun and you enjoyed going and it was the highlight of your week? You're like, I cannot wait to go to church. What if that became the reality here? How many of you would like to go to such a church? Amen. Well, I want to give you a story. Um, how many of you have ever given out a Hallmark card before? 
Okay, most people in here. Well, Gordon McKenzie, he worked at Hallmark for 30 years. And he was one of the creative designers behind Hallmark. So if you've ever given out a Hallmark card, he may have been the one who designed the message. But what he would do is creative workshops in the local public schools, the elementary schools, and so on. And he would ask the kids at different grade levels this one question. How many of you here are artists? Is there anyone here that's a creative genius? So in first grade, all of the class would raise their hand. Everyone's creative genius, artists. The entire class would unanimously raise their hand. So that was first grade. Second grade, he would ask the same question, and he would repeat this experiment in multiple schools. Second grade is almost the same every school. About 50% would raise their hands by the second grade. Same students, 50%. So third grade, he would go to the same students, ask, and only 10 out of 30 would raise their hands. How many artists? Only 10 out of 30. By the time he got to the sixth grade, only one or two in the whole class would raise their hand that they're an artist. And here's what he concluded, and I'm going to read you from his words. He said, there was a time when perhaps, when you were very young, when you had at least a fleeting notion of your own genius. And you were waiting for some authority figure to come along and validate it for you, but none ever came. And he said, we live in a world where everyone just wants to be normal. Everyone doesn't want to be strange, we just want to be ordinary. So what happens, according to Gordon at Hallmark, He says it suppresses creative genius. And you can ask little kids. How many of you are an artist? You can ask my kids. They're like, oh, I'm painted a masterpiece for you, Daddy. And I'm like, wow. It's scribble all over a page. But in their mind, it's a masterpiece. What happened along the way where you lost that sense of wonder? Where you lost that sense of awe? That God has put something inside of you that the world needs to see. What happened? Was it suppressed by society? Was it suppressed by those around you? And you are looking for someone to say, you are creative. God has something great for you. But along the line, along the way, those affirmations never came. So let me be that one guy that will say, I believe in you. I think that God has created potential inside of you that's yet to be unfolded. And some of you may be like, well, Pastor Timothy, I'm I'm in my 80s. I don't care. As long as you have breath, God still has something that the world needs. And you are here for such a time as this to unleash what God has worked inside of you. So today's message is going to be a vision message that's going to have you on the front seat of what God may be doing. And you're going to ask the question, what if? So today we're going to turn to Proverbs 29:18, And I'm going to kind of read the scripture. And then we're going to talk about it, what it actually means. And we're going to give some practical applications but many of you are familiar with the King James Version. It says, where there is no vision, the people what? Perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now listen to the New King James. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. The New Living Translation says it like this. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. And on your outline... I have a little note. The Hebrew word for vision is hazan, and it means divine instruction or a glimpse into future events. In other words, this is like a prophetic word from God, what God is trying to say to you. So that's what the the original meaning of that word means. So I, I love the professor of the Old Testament, Dr. Claude. He says, what the wise man is trying to communicate to his audience is that without prophetic revelation, 
and without the preaching of the prophets, calling the people into a faithful relationship with God and obedience to his word, people lose restraint and abandon God's law. So most of, most of us have heard this, you've got to get a vision, and all, but the, all that's great, but if the vision is not based upon God's word, then it really has no divine origin. So what I'm trying to tell you is, what we want to do is find out what God's word's saying, so that Proverbs 29:18 it becomes, here's what God's word says, and let's go after it. Versus, you know, th- this has been used in politics. This verse has been used all throughout history. Without a vision, people perish. Well, what kind of vision? It's talking about a vision from God, not just a man-made one. So let's turn to Habakkuk 2, 1 through 3. And this is another glimpse of God giving someone a, a vision from above. And I love how Habakkuk says, I will climb up into my watchtower and stand at my guard post. Put on your notes uh, on the side, watchtower can also be translated observation station. Does that not sound like a ride at like Six Flags or something? I'm going to climb up in my observation station, see what's going on. I love it. He says, there I will wait to see what the Lord says. Now, did you catch that? I will wait to see what the Lord says. Vision is seeing what God is saying. You catch that? You, you, ever, you ever say to someone, I, I hear what you're, you're saying or I see what you're saying? You're, you're visualizing audibly what's coming to you. So what's happening in the scripture is God is saying something, but as God is speaking, it's painting a picture of what is going to happen in the future. He says, there I'll stand, there I'll wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Look in the next verse. Then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. So the idea is in this day and time, um, a prophet or someone in authority would write out a message and they would give it to a runner. So when a runner's given the message, he wants to give the exact message and not the, the original intended message. He doesn't want it to be distorted, in other words. The vision is for a what time? Future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. And notice this is, this is a prophetic, God-ordained vision. Okay? If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently. For it will surely take place, it will not be delayed. Have, has God ever spoken something to you that it seemed like it took forever to come to pass? I mean, you prayed for something. God put it in your heart and you're like, God, I've been waiting like forever and a day. And I wish this would happen yesterday, but it's been 10 years, God, and I'm still waiting. It's been 20 years and I've been waiting. And many of you have seen God put something in your heart and then many years later it came to pass. And you look back and you say, I thank God that I waited for it. Because it was worth the wait. So today, we're just going to take a few practical applications of the power of a God-inspired vision. And like I said, the caveat is whatever vision we have, it has to be founded in God's Word. Otherwise, how do you know it's really from God? So we're going to take a few points, and then we're going to kind of reveal to you what we've come up with on Wednesday nights and the leadership retreat of painting a picture of what God wants to do. So you guys ready to jump in? Amen. So the power of vision, number one, a vision helps get you on the right path. A vision helps get you on the right path. In Proverbs 29, 18, it says, where there is no vision, no prophetic revelation, the people do what? They cast off restraint. So I say this often to teenagers, to single adults, and it applies to adults, but I think the reason why, let's just put teenagers in the category, the reason why they go astray is they don't have a vision of what God wants to do in their life. 
The reason why singles end up just throwing a lot of potential away because I'm not going to meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright is because they don't have a picture of what God wants to do in their lives. And what, what changed me is as a teenager, I got a vision of what God wanted to do. So as a 15-year-old, when God called me into the ministry, I still was attracted to girls at the time, but I wasn't going to allow girls to hijack the vision. I still had certain desires that any 15-year-old would have, but God painted a vision of the future, so I didn't allow that to hijack my life. So here's what I tell middle schoolers, high schoolers, singles is this. The greatest thing you can do is get a vision of what God wants for your life. If you can just catch one glimpse of the vision, the Bible says it'll keep you from casting off restraint. It'll keep you on the path. So parents, grandparents, the greatest thing you can do for your kids and grandkids is give them a vision of maybe what God wants to do. Like what that looks like is you see certain gifts and abilities in your children and you say, I see you potentially doing this. A vision is is seeing what God may be doing. And it's saying, I believe in you. Instead of suppressing what God's doing, it's fanning the flame. It's saying, God has so much potential in you. We need to be speaking life over our children instead of death. Amen. We live in a society that puts people down. We as Christians need to be sharing the gospel with our kids and lifting them up. Amen. So we need the power of this vision. Number two, a godly vision promotes passion and joy. Back at Proverbs 20:19, it says, but he who keeps the law is happy. He who keeps the law is happy. You know, the interesting thing as, as adults and as teenagers and as senior adults, sometimes we think as the Bible as a bunch of rules and regulations. But here's God's intent and purpose. Whenever God lays out a rule and says, don't do it, it's like a father. It's saying, I don't want you to do this because if you do it, you'll get hurt. And I, I know better. I actually know the future. So if you do this, it's going to really hurt you. And because I love you, I don't want to see you get hurt. And when the Bible says, don't do this, he's keeping us away certain things that will trip us up. So as a parent, it's like with my children, my daughter Kira loves ice cream. And, you know, I could let her eat the whole half gallon, but she would be sick a few hours later. And the same is true with her Heavenly Father. When he says, do this, it's for your own benefit. It's out of love. When he says, don't do this, it's because it's going to hurt you. And he knows much better. So that when it says, happy is he who keeps the law, it's saying when you really get the true intention of the law, it's for your benefit, not for your harm. Then you realize the Bible is a great thing. And the more closely I can follow it, the better my life will be. Amen. One of the favorite stories from Wednesday night was from Walt Disney. Anybody been to Disney World or Disneyland? When you wish upon a star. I'm not going to sing. Um, it's great, right? It's fun. But did you know Walt Disney, um, before all this came with the Magic Kingdom, when Walt Disney was early in his younger days, he got fired from a newspaper. Anybody know that? And the reason why he got fired, they said, you have no good ideas suppressing his creativity, right? So he moves over to Kansas City. Okay, the job's not working out here. I got fired. So I'm going to move to Kansas City. So he moved to, moves to Kansas City. And he is so poor, he's Poe. You know, when you're Poe, you can't even afford the O and the R. You're just, you're Poe. I mean, he was just really poor. Okay, we're, we're having a, some crazy fun time today, right? So... He gets a job working at a church as a graphic designer doing advertisements for the church. Wouldn't it be great if we could have Walt Disney working for Arden first? Imagine the graphics and the slides we'd have on Sunday morning. It'd be awesome. So this church hires him, and as most churches, they can't afford to pay a designer a lot. 
So he ends up living in the church garage, which is one problem. The garage is infested by mice. So Walt Disney is trying to help this pastor out this church, designing these, these graphics. And at night, he hears the little beep, 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 you know, mice crawling through. And, I mean, you can imagine, my wife would be screaming. I mean, one of the former houses we live in the country, there was a little field mice that would get in. And she's like, oh, my goodness. And I'm like, it's just a little I, I was scared, too, but just little mice, you know. So um, when he saw the mice, eventually he named one of them Mickey. And out of that crazy chaos, Mickey Mouse emerged. And we know the story about Mickey Mouse, right? Became uh, worldwide famous. So the story goes on that Walt Disney had a lot of crazy ideas. And he had one simple rule. He would present his idea to the board of directors. And unless everybody completely said that he was crazy, he didn't pursue the idea. That's right, I said. Unless everyone said, you're crazy, unanimously disagreed with him, he wouldn't pursue it because he thought it wasn't worth his time or his creativity. So whenever his whole board said that will never happen, that's when he went after it. So in 1974, in Orlando, Florida, Mrs. Disney was standing next to, there was, she was sitting next to the news reporter, Walter Conkright. And Walter was trying to affirm her because her husband, Walt, had just passed away a few years earlier. And he didn't know what to say. They were unleashing Walt Disney World. And he, and he looked at her and said, wouldn't it be nice if Walt could be here today and see this? And Mrs. Disney said something to the, the news reporter that just shook him up. He said, if Walt had not seen this first, you would not be seeing it today. In other words, vision is seeing something before it even happens. Walt Disney saw Disney World before it ever became a reality. So a vision that God gives, you see it in here before you see it out there. You guys tracking with me? So I think that's important. So it promotes passion and joy. Number three, a God-sized vision. It's often birthed out of great struggles. Look at Habakkuk 2, verse 1. It says, I will see how God will answer my complaint. Often, whenever you have a great struggle, a great hardship, that's the time when great vision is born. We often talk about Martin Luther, I have a dream, right? That was birthed out of a time when there was racial conflict. And so much turmoil going on. A vision arose about different nationalities coming together as one. And he had this vision and this dream. Many of you are familiar with Sylvester Stallone. Anybody ever seen a Rocky movie in here? All right. It, it pumps me up. Every time I'd watch a Rocky movie, this is a little confessional, I would like want to like airbox and do some push-ups. And I thought I would get a six-pack just like that by watching the movie. A little confession. Um, my wife doesn't. We don't watch it together because... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's crazy, the movie. But Sylvester Stallone, let's just say when I watch it, I get excited and I want to work out a lot and um, lift some weights and probably hurt myself. So does anybody know the backstory of Sylvester Stallone? Many people don't realize, but Sylvester Stallone grew up in different orphanages. And he, he went from house to house in the infamous Hell's Kitchen area. And he, he just really had a low self-esteem. In fact, many of the kids in his elementary and middle school made fun of him, as well as high school, because he had this snarled look about him, and his speech was often slurred. And that was because during birth, a facial nerve was severed, and it gave him that snarled look and the slurred speech. The kids would make fun of him. So in high school, because of all the uh, kids making fun of him, he went to a school for kids with problems. And he was voted the most likely to end up in an electric chair. 
So can you imagine getting that from your classmates? This slice of Esther Stallone, he's going to end up in an electric chair. How many of you would like that as um, the class vote? So in, fast forward in his 20s, um, Sylvester Stallone enrolls in beauty school. Can you imagine this guy working and cutting your hair? So he's working in beauty school, and he becomes a beauty school dropout. He's like, I really don't want to cut hair anymore. I'm going to go into acting. So in his 20s, he tries acting, and he can't really get any jobs. No one really wants him to act because of the slurred speech and so on and so forth. So he's really struggling. And at the time, he's married. And he, sell, he has to sell his dog for $25 just to help make ends meet. Can you imagine selling the dog you love so much for 25 And he ends up selling his wife's jewelry, and he ends up living in a bus station. So how many of you would want to be in his place? Not me. So somehow he gets a ticket to go see this fight. And this special fight is Chuck Wepner versus Muhammad Ali. And he sees Chuck, this no-name fighter, survived 15 rounds against the great legend Muhammad Ali. And all of a sudden, he goes wherever he's staying at the time and locks himself up for three days, and he writes the the film for Rocky, the script for Rocky. And he goes along Hollywood Boulevard and other places and tries to sell it. And surprisingly, everybody likes his script. And they said, this would be great for a great famous movie star, but we don't really want you acting in it. But he had one caveat. He's like, I don't want Burt Reynolds. I want to be the star. I'm not going to sell you the script unless you let me be the star. So people rejected him, would not sell it, would not take it. Finally, someone offered him $325,000 for the script. And at this time, he only had $106 in his bank account. How many of you would take the $325,000? I don't know about you, but I'm like, okay, I've struggled enough. I'm going to buy my wife's jewelry back and get my dog back. All right? So uh, he decides not to. And he said, you know what, I only have one chance to make a shot. And this is going to be my chance. I'm not going to do it. So finally, according to the story, he sold it to someone for 35000 He left the 300 and some on the table, sold it for 35000 They let him be the main star, and um, the rest is history. Did you know how much he made off the Rocky films? Does anybody want to know? Over $1 billion over the six Rocky films. So here's the thing. Sylvester Stallone saw the potential in a film. How much should we as Christians see the power of the gospel and it's, it's worth far more than anything could buy? And we should be dedicated and devoted to go after it. And often a vision is birthed out of great struggles. And we, when we turn on the news, when we see what's going on, we realize our world is in turmoil. I mean... It's, it's almost depressing watching the news. There's like a shooting every day on the news. There's all these bombers and all this terrorism. So out of great struggle comes a great vision. Number four, a vision should be clear and easy to articulate. If you look back at Habakkuk 2, it says write it clear so that the runner can give the message. How many of you have ever heard a vision statement that was so long and you're just like so confused? And I, I think we should realize a vision should be clear. One of the greatest complaints I've heard through the past 18 years or so as a minister is, I don't know the church's vision. I don't know where the church is going. How many of you have ever said that or thought that? I mean, many people, that's the biggest complaint in a church. I don't know where the church is going. Well, I, I don't want you to be able to say that anymore. Thankfully, with all of, 
all of our help on Wednesday nights, but we've got something together. I think you guys will be inspired by it. Let me read your quote by Bob Logan. He says, Vision is the capacity to create a compelling picture of the desired state of affairs that inspires people to respond, that which is desirable, that which could be, should be, that which is attainable. He says, A godly vision is right for the times, right for the church, and right for the people. A godly vision promotes faith rather than fear. A godly vision motivates people to action. A godly vision requires risk-taking. A godly vision glorifies God and not people. And I would say amen, Brother Bob. Speaking of Brother Bob, it's good to have Brother Bob Macham in here. Or great Gideon. All right, number five. A vision is not about what is, but about what could be. Look back at Habakkuk 2, verse 3. It says, the vision is for a what time? A future time. So it's not about what is, it's about what could be. My lovely bride up here in the front row, um, she's in nesting mode right now. Baby number four on the way. And our house has been interesting. I don't know what it is about women, but during the second and third trimester, this magical thing happens. You get nesting mode where you're cleaning and doing projects, and it's like, how do you have this energy? You have three kids, and you're working all day, all night. Any other moms know what I'm talking about? This, this nesting mode comes over. So I don't have a before and after picture yet, but uh, I had this home gym upstairs, and it had all these weights laying around, over 400 pounds of weights, which I never used very much, and a treadmill and all this equipment. And my wife had this vision. She's like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to sell all your weights. Is that okay, honey? Sure. And we're going to turn this giant upstairs room into a homeschool paradise. I, I, I see this white table and these chairs, these little two windows. I see them as sun reading rooms where you can like sit and read books looking out the window. And she had this picture in her mind. And I'm like, all right. So here, here we are taking the weights apart. And pregnant woman helping me out. We're carrying these weights down the stairs and into the garage. And they sold. And and uh, now the, the, the picture's starting to emerge. There's this white table and chairs, and there's a chalkboard, and it's all coming to pass. And before, it was just a random room with weights in it, but now it has potential and it has purpose far greater than weights just sitting there. And what a godly vision does, it gives you a, a picture of not what is, but this is what could be. It's seeing the potential of a God-sized opportunity. It's looking at something and not seeing just as it is, but as it could be. So that's what a godly vision does. If you're with me, say, uh-huh. Are you guys getting fired up yet? If not, I am. We have to pour some water on me to, to, to get the fire out. All right, number six. And I'm trying to talk fast because if you see your notes, we've got a, a, a long vision statement. <laughs> number six. A vision that has a divine origin also has a divine completion notice it says if it seems to tarry wait for it will surely take place it will not be delayed so in other words if god gives it god will see it through i wrote down a thought that god gives provision for the vision unity and passion are the twin keys to unlock the door for god's provision when you have more than one vision you have division Division and doubt are the twin keys that unlock the door for the devil to come in and steal the dream. Shall we unite around something greater than ourselves 
Or shall we allow the devil come in and devour the dream? Whenever you see doubt, whenever you see disunity, whenever you see more than one vision, you see the devil come in and steal the dream. But whenever you see the people of God coming together, united together, and you see purpose, that unlocks the door for God's provision for the vision. Amen? Number seven. A vision requires human patience and perseverance. Back at Habakkuk. It says, if it seems slow, wait patiently. For it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Throughout the course of human history, there's been many times where people wanted to give up. Just one minute short of the miracle. You may not realize this, but some of you are on the precipice of something amazing. And you may be just one minute from your miracle. And if you give up on the last leg, you may not receive what God wants you to inherit. I'm, I'm going to read just a few things. Some of you may not know about the Italian sculpture Antonio. He worked on this large piece of marble. And he couldn't see anything coming out of the marble. And others in, in Italy did the same. And they, they worked and worked and nothing came. But along came Michelangelo. He saw this big piece of marble. And he said, you know what, I see potential in this marble. And out of this block of marble that other artists could see nothing, he made the great David. The great piece of art that we think about today. Or consider Columbus. Christopher Columbus, when he said the world was round, everyone thought he was crazy. And in Spain, all the experts said, you're crazy. But Columbus had Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand that said, listen... I think you're a little crazy, but not too bad. Let's just go after this. So Columbus set sail. Does anybody remember on which boats? You guys remember. Okay. So he set sail, and he discovered this world full of potential and resources, even when others said he was crazy. Even Thomas Edison discouraged his friend Henry Ford. When Henry Ford told Edison that he was going to build this motor vehicle, even the great Edison said, you're crazy. Why don't you just work for me? Use your time. Make it valuable. But Henry Ford persisted and said, listen, I have this picture of this automobile and it's going to work. And the rest is history, right? Let's not forget, we live in North Carolina. What big feat happened in North Carolina that everyone said could not happen? The Wright brothers, you're right. Whenever Orville and Wilbur Wright said, we're going to fly, journalists army specialist, and even his dad said, you, you, you're a little crazy. Let's leave flying for the birds. But the Wright brothers said, sorry, we have a dream and we have to make it happen. And against everyone's dismay, Kitty Hawk happened. And they launched the plane and they flew in spite of everyone's ridiculous, it won't happen. So I'm wondering if people look at Arden first and they say, this is a church that was... I wonder if we look at the church and say this is the church that is and shall be. The reason why we have this building, the reason why we have 28 or so educational Sunday school rooms is not because of the past. That was used, but it's for the potential of the future. And as I stand here, I stand on the precipice of a promise that God has given us this great commission to go out and reach our community, our city, our country, and our world. But it's got to start in our backyard. It's got to start where we're at. So uh, I'm really excited, and um, today I want you guys to turn on your listening guide. There's going to be a few highlights. I don't have time to go in depth, but I want you guys to read this when you get home. 
But here's a question to ask the Wednesday night crowd. I said, how many of you have ever washed or waxed or detailed a rental car? A rental car. Anybody ever washed or waxed or detailed a rental car? How many of you do it for your own car occasionally? I need to do it my car badly. Well, the difference is this. A rental car you don't own. So you're not going to wash or wax. There's one exception. My father-in-law did that. I don't know why, but he told me he, he did it, I think, because he's meticulous, but he did it once. But typically, a rental car, you don't wash or wax because you don't own it. But your own car, you do. Here's the, the problem in many churches. Many people rent the church. They don't own the church. Many people date the church. They don't marry the church. Last time I read my Bible, we're the bride of Christ, so it's kind of a, a big deal. It's kind of a commitment. So a little review from last week for those of you who weren't here. We talked about a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will produce great Christians in a great church. We sold that off Rick and Warren. thought it was a great thought. But think about it. The great commandment, love God, love others. The great commission, reach the world. If we do those things, imagine what will take place. Our mission statement, let's see if anybody remembers it, to lead what? Ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. And we talked about we're all ordinary. But you know what? When Jesus moves inside, ordinary becomes extraordinary because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Amen. So you guys ready to hear the vision? Amen. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you a few highlights. This is kind of the summary statement. We see our church impacting Asheville and beyond with the love and truth of the gospel. We see lives that are transformed. Here are just a few possible pictures of what we see in the present and the future. So a mission statement is kind of, here's the general summary. A vision paints a picture. So what the church, uh, all the Wednesday nights working together, the mission team, our leadership retreat, what we try to do is paint a picture. And some of you added so many great statements to this. So the first one is this. Irreligious people are being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? People that are irreligious, I'm, I'm really not in the God thing, and all of a sudden they're following after Jesus. That would be amazing. We are known for our love. Whenever visitors come in, they can feel the love, and they can experience the grace of God. Single moms find that this church offers help with lifting the load of responsibilities off our shoulders. And by the way, that would include single dads as well if they need help. Students, they're chasing after a greater vision. They're giving up the pleasures of this world for the pursuit of God and the dream of God. They're catching a vision of what could be. Singles, all of a sudden they're pursuing Jesus to the greatest love as they wait on God's future for their lives, whatever that is. Young families, they're excited to see their family grow and experience new life in Christ. And part of that is... We're aiming after a first-class kids' ministry. We're aiming after, from birth all the way through, that they experience Jesus, they come to know Him, God willing, as their Lord and Savior, and they grow as disciples of Christ. Adults, now get this, they're working at their jobs as though they were working for the Lord, seeing their work as worship for the Lord. Now, what would happen if your employer saw that you saw your work, your 9 to 5 job, or in, Jim, in Jim's case, 11 to 7 in the morning, whatever it is, night shift, um, as I'm doing this for the Lord. All of a sudden, your employer would look with a holy curiosity of what God's doing. Senior adults, and we love senior adults, they're discovering that retirement is the best time for them to make the most difference in the kingdom. 
They are giving up countless hours to volunteer, serve, and giving themselves to make an eternal difference in this season of their lives. Wouldn't Wouldn't it be amazing if just those few items came to pass? What would Arden First be like if if the majority, if not everybody, were following this? One of my favorite points in here, greedy people are being turned into generous givers. I love when people say, everything I have is God's. Whatever that looks like, I'm giving it up to Him. What would it look like if we were a a church that helps the poor, the needy, the widows and orphans of society? We're helping people minimize their struggles and maximize God's grace in their lives. For, for those of you who have been through struggles or know people who have been through uh, AA or Celebrate Recovery, you will like this. We are helping to deliver people out of bondage to sin, habits, and hang-ups. We are a church that helps people in the recovery process. And part of that is we even have a people heart for people who are in jails and prison, people behind bars. We help people go from recovery to discovery. We're helping them realize that God loves them no matter what, and His grace is sufficient to forgive them. Amen? What about those who have been hurt by other churches? And Stephen Stone helped add at this point here. We are helping heal those who have been hurt by other churches. Our goal is help to turn the disenfranchised into dedicated followers of Jesus. We want them to feel the love so that they can receive the love and one day they'll be able to live the love. But first of all, we have to show them the love. Our church building has become a lighthouse for the lost, a hospital for sinners. A place of grace and a beacon for truth. We are a local church is actively preparing to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of times in churches we don't talk about that, but what would it look like if Arden First was realizing one day Jesus is coming soon and we're preparing this church as a bride for Christ. We're getting ready for His coming. We are a local church that is actively preparing for His return. The next point on your outline is we are churches being used by others in the community. Homeschoolers, public schools, church planners, and others are finding Arden First is a kingdom-minded church. Which, by the way, we're already doing. For those of you who don't know, on Monday and Fridays, homeschoolers use this building. On Monday nights, we have Bible Study Fellowship, a men's group that meets here on Monday nights. And the list goes on and on. We are a church that realizes we're a steward of this building. We feel like it's bad stewardship if this church is only used on Sunday and Wednesday. We want God to be glorified every day. Amen. We see all of our Sunday school classes being filled with people who are belonging, believing, and becoming. We are equipping our people for evangelism and discipleship. Our people are reaching, teaching, and equipping others to become fully devoted followers of Christ. I want you guys to catch this next point because this may be hard for some to see. But our worship center is full and we have multiple services to accommodate our growing church. If we realize that 60 or 70% of this community is unchurched and we go after them and God brings some in this, in this building, this church as well as the other churches around wouldn't be able to hold all the people if we started really reaching the people. The potential's endless. We are churches on mission locally, nationally, and globally. We're sending people out on short-term and long-term mission trips. We are a church that is captivated by the love for God and others and are seeking to fill the Great Commission. And this, is, this next point is something that uh, was brought up in the leadership retreat I thought was really good. It was Michelle and Aaron Arthur that hit on this. But our church is made up of all generations. Ethnic and cultural diversity abound, and love is the language spoken here. So part of what Aaron and Michelle said is, I would love to be a church that has diversity. I mean, you see every nation, tribe, and tongue. You see every age group represented. Wouldn't that be amazing to see Arden first? Amen.
Prayer is the lifeline and the power that keeps our church full of life and passion for God and others. We are known as one of the most generous churches, giving more than 10% of all our income to missions, outreach, and community. You know, I've often, you often hear churches talk about tithing, but what would it be like if, if the church tithed on the tithes? At least 10% went out to reach the community, went out to reach the world. Wouldn't that be amazing? If every church in America gave 10% to reach out, imagine what we could do for missions and evangelism. Can I get a uh-huh? All right. We are a catalyst in Southern Baptist life, both local and state levels. If we are a Baptist church, let's make a splash in Baptist life. Let's do something that's going to impact Buncombe Baptist and beyond. Let's be a catalyst. We're striving to help out nonprofits. You know, there's other nonprofits out there that are making an eternal difference. And we realize we're going to need to partner with other groups that are truly getting the gospel out to make a difference for eternity. And this is something that's very unusual for most churches, this next point. But we have a heart to help out other churches. You know, what it's like to be a kingdom-minded church is this. We don't want this church only to grow. We want to help every God-fearing and Bible-believing church grow. And what that may look like is we hear that someone, a church, has lost a pastor. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had a whole teaching team of ministers that we could send out? Hey, you can borrow our pastor, one of our pastors. Well, another church, their worship pastor resigns. Guess what? We've got to have a whole worship team. We can send you one of our teams. That would be kingdom-minded. Well, we're not as focused on us, but focus on God's kingdom and growing. We are a training ground for those called into ministry. We realize that it's going to take a lot of people that are called to full-time ministry, and we want to be a training ground to equip those people. Many of you are big on humanitarian efforts. So we put this point in there because we thought it was important. We are providing clean water to those in countries who need water wells. Wouldn't it be great one day at Arden First, say a few years from now, we can say, you know, we've helped start ten water wells in countries that needed it, that we're given pure water, but we're also giving the gospel out. People are being sent out from Arden First as Christian leaders, pastors, staff members, and missionaries. Can you imagine what our community would look like if our church became this? Can you imagine what our city would be rocked if this church rose up? Think about it like this. Jesus changed the world with 12 apostles. What could he do with this group of people out here? Amen. You know what? The final thought before we close it out. And I'm surprised I got through four pages of your notes in this quick a time. That was God's grace. But here's the point. Whenever we are united together with a God-ordained vision, you know what it does? It, it changes lives. And what I would encourage you to do is take this home and look through each thing and see, is this, is this in the Bible? Is it biblical to help out widows and orphans? What would you think? Is it biblical to be a kingdom-minded church and help the body of Christ? Is it biblical to help meet needs and then share Christ? I mean, you go home and you be the discernment, but if its, if it's root is founded in the Bible, then what we learn from Proverbs 29 and Habakkuk is this. Whenever you take something that's God-inspired, founded on His Word, and people get behind it, great things can happen. God gives provision for the vision. Let us pray. Father, I don't know how to land the plane after this. Uh, Oh, I thank you, God, for um, this special moment, God. This, as I mentioned before, this didn't come just out of the clouds, but it came through much work and preparation from our Wednesday night crowd, from our leadership team, through our Sunday school leaders, etc. And God, you've been working this in my heart since 2009. So it's been eight years of growing and developing 
And Father, I pray that we would realize that really the whole vision summarizes in our mission to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. And Father, I'm wondering as we talked about single moms, as we talked about those who, who are in recovery process, maybe habits and hang-ups, as we talked about senior adults realizing this is the time to, to use my time and my treasure and my talents and my retirement days for the Lord and to, to invest in eternity, I pray that some of those things really register in their hearts. That God, this vision, the only way it will come to pass is if you lay it on all of our hearts maybe to take up one of those items as our mantle. That I'm going to be about the single moms or I'm going to be about helping people in countries that need water. I'm going to be about helping our students or kids minister, whatever it may be. God, I pray that you would give provision for the vision so that God, maybe one day, one day we can look back and say, you know what, I was a part of something greater than myself. Father, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for your grace and your riches in Christ. God, if there be one here that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be their day, just in their own words, to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I realize that you have a greater plan than I even realize, but I've got to start by giving my life to you. So, Jesus, I make you my Lord and Savior. I pray that someone would pray that today. Father, thank you for all that you've done and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, final thought before we